He came to rescue us and to restore his family. And then he's looking forward to the day when there will be another great wedding feast and he will serve us this wonderful wine, something we've never had before. Hello, this is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are your friends and mine, Amy. Good morning. And Tracy. Good morning. There is a slight possibility Karen may be with us today. She may jump in later, but uh, we don't know for sure. She was uh, delivering a friend to the airport this morning and said she might not make it back. But if we happen to hear her today, we can call it a bonus. Oh, guys, we're in the throes of... We're in the throes of Christmas season. I suppose by now our listeners will be past Christmas. But are you are you feeling the are you feeling the pressure yet? Actually, I think I'm. A, we're feeling like we're ahead of the power curve. Nice. Usually, this would be the week we're putting up our tree. We've had it up for over a week already. So yeah, nice, nice. I'm hoping to get our our tree up today. We got a lot of the other decorations and stuff up, but we're just kind of a little behind. Shannon's been sick, and and things have just been a little 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 odd but we're 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 pushing forward we're getting into it <laughs> i'm wrapping presents today and i'm going to get some of them in the mail tomorrow wow organization wow <laughs> yeah, that's my plan <laughs> i i haven't even started any shopping yet i'm a man though that's the way we roll <laughs> right well calvin was gone on a trip yeah so i did a bunch of shopping while he was gone yeah oh yeah calvin was on an amazing trip yep he was he had a blast to go to Africa, ride his motorcycle yeah. through. That sounds, that sounds fantastic. Saw a few of the photos of that, and that looked really, really cool. My favorite part was they did a balloon ride out over the Serengeti, Ooh. and Ooh. it was hours long. And then oh. when they landed, the people had made them this very nice breakfast, and then they got in jeeps and went on the ground across the Serengeti. Oh man! It was like nine hours out there. It was really cool. That sounds fantastic. Yeah, that would be awesome. It's a place I'd like to see. Don't know if I'll ever get the opportunity, but I would love to see. I'd love to see Africa. I'd love to see. I've never been out of the United States. So, you know, I'd, I'd like to see other parts of the world. I was pretty jealous when he was doing the balloon ride. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Trekking across, <laughs> trekking across Africa in faulty motorcycles. That, that part didn't sound so fun. <laughs> right, right. Right. Exactly. So photos of. Having to have tires fixed and <laughs> engines fixed. and Oh, man. <laughs> Between the five guys, they had eight flat tires. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, he made it home safe, and he has a great story to tell friends. And but that's kind of why I'm wrong. Yeah. He's pretty good at that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All righty. Well, let's get into our discussion today. We are continuing the Gospels. And... Um, so we've, we've gone through the birth of Jesus. We've gone through, uh, even last on our last episode, we even went through the baptism of Jesus. And so as we step into, uh, or, or continue into, I should say, the Gospels this week, we're going to find that the chronology, if you're trying to just suss it out uh, in the Bible itself, the chronology sort of jumps all over the place because we've got John who is putting in, uh, he doesn't seem to worry terribly about chronology a lot of times and puts things in uh, just kind of according to maybe what he's feeling when he's writing. 
Uh, you find that the other three who have the synoptic gospels, even their stuff doesn't always line up chronologically. And I suspect maybe, uh, I think it isn't Mark the earliest gospel. I think that's, I think that's the way I've learned that in the past, that Mark is the earliest gospel. And then um, uh, Matthew and Luke used Mark kind of as framework to write their gospels later. And, uh, you know, adding, adding things and maybe even, I suppose with Mark, he's probably, uh, or I'm sorry, with uh, Luke, um, he's probably, he might be a little more accurate because he is writing the, He's writing basically the time frame as uh, Peter would have been telling it to him. So I don't know. I don't know. It, and I well, think and, maybe. And, and it looks like like Luke talks to the women quite a lot because mm. um, he gives the women's perspectives on a lot of things. And, and he says mm. at one point, you know, and met Mary treasured these things and hid them in her heart. Mm. So I really feel like he's talking to the women who were present as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So all of the Gospels. Even within the synoptic ones, which are the the closest to each other, uh, all are going to bring their own little nuances in because it's every it's individual perspectives. And so, I don't know as we as we move forward and the the you know probably I know that today I probably have some of the chronology out of place, and but that's okay because I don't know that at this point that exactly when things happen is is so much important as understanding that they happened. So uh, that's just that's just a, a little heads up moving forward through through the gospels because because it's kind of tough to to figure out exactly where things are going and different genealogy or not genealogies different chronologies kind of put things in different orders and and. Uh, it's uh, it is what it is, um, but we'll so for yeah, we'll get through it. We'll, we'll get through, through it. Yeah, and we'll talk about all of it, and it's gonna be it's gonna be really great stuff because the, the gospels are really a rubber meets the road uh, type of place with all the things that we have been talking about for the last three years on here on the podcast of you know I mean four thousand years of waiting for a Messiah has come to a come to a fruition and. You know, now we're starting to finally see just what he was what he was here for and what he was going to be doing. Luke chooses to put the chronology of Jesus a little later in his narrative. We talked about uh, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, and we noted some interesting characters in there, uh, <laughs> prostitutes and and a few uh, other people that we <laughs> might consider to be a little unsavory. Um, uh, even even some non-Israelites, I guess, when you really get down to it. But at any rate, we have we have Matthew's genealogy already. Then Luke puts in a gene- genealogy from a slightly different perspective, and his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, which I find very interesting because the ability to, I mean, first of all, the ability to trace your lineage is is kind of fascinating to me like I've said here before, where I don't know my lineage past, you know, a couple of grandparents. And here we've got Luke reciting the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, which gives great credibility to the creation story, the flood story, all of those things that get brought into question. I just wanted to point out that Luke does it in the opposite manner of Matthew. I'm sure you guys noticed that too, but you know, 
uh, Matthew starts out with Abraham mm. and proceeds mm-hmm. forward. And um, Luke starts out with Joseph and proceeds backwards. Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was kind of a interesting thing. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think I like it the most because it shows that, you know what, um, in the lineage of Jesus, there's there's all walks of life. There's all characters. There's all um, maybe what some would think is flaws or something like that. And, you know, in character and situation and culture. And that's what makes up Jesus. So he could reach the whole spectrum of people. I agree. Yeah, it's pointing out that Jesus is not. I mean, while he's of, quote unquote, royal blood, it it just shows that this this is not like this pure pedigree coming through. It's it's uh, he's he's actually rather common when you think of it. I mean, you know, I suppose if a lot of us, if we were to trace back. We could probably trace to some sort of maybe royalty somewhere along the line, you know, who knows? But uh, I know a lot of us would like to, you know, but um it's not, it's really not that important. And it's not even that important for Messiah here to have a pure pedagogue. He just does, he's, he's about as common as they get in that respect. But then when you think about it, the, the ones who are royalty are the ones who've committed the worst crimes. Like David is spoken of so well in scripture. And yet the reality is, you know, he, he was an adulterer and he murdered her husband in order to get her. So, I mean, you know, we know all that. And so, it's almost ironic that the the royalty, which should be a point of pride, is actually pretty shameful. Mm-hmm. That is, yeah, that is an interesting aspect of that as well. Yeah, you bet. So, no real need to spend a lot of time in the genealogy that Luke lays out. It's uh, it's interesting historically to be able to to trace that, and like I said, tracing it all the way to Adam. By because I mean, there's some there's some even Bible scholars that kind of try to question whether the uh, Genesis story is is truth and and you know factual or not and it sure seems like Luke thinks so because he uh because he obviously uh goes all the way back to Adam and he calls him the son of God indicating that he was created not born so i mean that's that's something well i think that's really important to remember because Jesus repeatedly says things about both Noah and Adam and Eve and so he assumes that it's true. And mm-hmm. if we're going to call ourselves Christians, we need to believe what he says above all else. So I just think that's a, a super important point. Yeah. In Jesus' mind, it's not mythology. It's the real story of how we got here. Right. Right. Okay, so I'm going to jump away from Luke at this point, and I'm going to go back to John chapter 1, where he picks up after the uh, the baptism. Now, you recall that at the baptism, we had Jesus in the water. We had the Holy Spirit come down as a dove. We had the voice of the Father uh, from heaven saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, and John picks up from there, and he talks about the next couple of days in Jesus's life, or at least the way I'm reading it, he's talking about the next couple of days, the way things roll out for him. Because he says the next day, and so I take this to be after the baptism and that Holy Spirit encounter, we have John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples, and he says he says to them, he sees he's seeing Jesus. He says he says, "Behold, the Lamb of God." That's a big statement in itself. If you have it out of context, people might not understand what John is saying to these disciples, the Lamb of God. 
now we've spent the last three years studying the Old Testament. And so we get a kind of a concept of this. So when John is saying, behold, the Lamb of God, this is an indication of a sacrifice. This is yes. an indication of, of something greater. This is not just a really good guy that's standing next to a river. This is something uh, this is something deeper that's coming that John is pointing out. See, I think those are some of those those messages that that were being put out there that when you look back, the disciples and everyone else kind of missed. Mm-hmm. It was like, OK, are you for knowing the laws and trying to abide by them perfectly? And um, you missed the boat. Right. Yeah, they. There was, yeah, there was a lot of time, especially by now, of trying to make sure to keep all those laws that the Israelites hadn't been able to uh, ever. And but they, you know, finally after their their exile to Babylon, they finally decided, oh, you know, we should actually really try. <laughs> and, and and they really, really doubled and tripled down on. Trying, trying to uh, keep those laws and uh, keep Israel pure in that in that fashion. But yeah, you're absolutely right, Tracy. They missed it. They missed the whole point of the Messiah at this point. They were looking for that earthly kingdom and yes. not thinking, not seeing the big picture. Once again, mm-hmm. it's cliche, but that's what happened. It's the truth, though. Yeah, they were looking for that earthly kingdom. They were expecting somehow along the line they got it. They got a, a mix-up where they were expecting uh, that the Messiah was going to be this great earthly king and bring Israel into some sort of glory um, that they were that they were wanting. I mean, I you know, I, I suppose at this point we're you know a few year thousand years down the road and they're thinking of the the kingdom of David and Solomon and you know hearing stories and and studying histories or being aware of histories anyway of of the kingdom in its glory days and thinking that it's going to be restored to that you know i think sometimes when you when you have to look on a you know i don't know if it's heavenly level but they were just getting caught up with the here and now and the and the worldly aspect and that being a kingdom and and ruling the world when god was like no this is far reaching this is humanity yeah, way more, way more than an earthly kingdom. My Bible, you know, has all these references, footnotes and things like that. And the very first footnote that it points me back to is the Passover, which I think is so interesting. You know, rather than going into all the sacrificial laws first, the very first thing it points out is that Christ is our Passover. And to me, that was very uh, telling because I feel like it... It really is like he's the one who stands between us and, you know, we're Satan's lawful prey. And and Jesus is the one who's like, nope, I'm going to take that bullet for you. And, you know, it really is, you know, in a modern sense, or I guess coming from our modern perspective, you know, we don't we don't think in terms of those sacrifices and things like that. But I'm better able to see it in terms of. Christ is the one who is getting between me. And well, do you remember like in the Chronicles of Narnia, right? The mm. witch comes and she's like, oh, they're mine. Mm. And, and Aslan says, oh, I'll take his place, you know? So to mm-hmm. me, that's just a gut wrenching. It's beautiful. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so John pointing out this Lamb of God to his disciples. And, you know, I guess John must have been a fairly good teacher because he's got these two disciples with him. And they seem to understand immediately what John means because they decide they're going to follow Jesus right that moment. Or at least that's the way I take it. I don't know the way John puts it. He says he, they began to follow Jesus. And I don't think that just means, you know, for a little while. I think that seems to mean that this is the time when they, they kind of shift alliances and uh, they become Jesus's disciple at this point. And uh, it, it's interesting. It's a little interesting here because one of the disciples is, is pointed out. and His name is Andrew. And he is the brother of Simon Peter, who we will get to know uh, better later on. But he tells his brother, we've we found the Messiah. Now, whether they you know, had a full understanding of what that was meaning or not, I, it's not necessarily clear here. But that's a pretty good statement to be making of, you know, here he is. This is the guy. And this tells me here that Peter had some interaction with Jesus maybe before he was called because we're not told here that Peter left his work and followed Jesus. But this would indicate to me that Andrew and Peter had been studying that they, Mm -hmm. um, that they were, they had been looking uh, for the Messiah or expecting. And and, um, it was kind of a, an exciting uh, moment. Yeah, I, I feel that excitement in the passage. Like Andrew is excited about what he's found, and so he goes and finds his brother and tells him, you know, I've found the anointed one. So, um, yeah, he is. there's a sense of excitement right there in the passage. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's too, it's, when, when you found that, you want to spread it and you want to tell it to everybody else. You know, and I think you kind of go down who's important to you, and, and family tends to pop up first. And I think that's in the excitement. Yeah, and so it's kind of interesting that that um, as brothers, they they were both on board with this because uh, you don't you don't always see within families that everybody is is on board with things in a religious sense. But just yeah. the idea that that they had been studying, they had obviously been talking about this. It was something that they were anticipating, and when it happened, Andrew is excited and he goes and tells uh, Peter, and it says he brings Peter to Jesus. So. I tend to think that Peter met Jesus before being called away. And and we'll get to, you know, we will get to that eventually, that idea of Peter being called. My suspicion is that this isn't the time it happens. Maybe it is. John's chronology is different than everybody else's. Like I said, the chronology ends up all over the place. But I tend to think that rather than Jesus just walking up blindly to somebody and saying, "Hey, follow me," that they just simply dropped everything. I, it 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 makes a little more sense in my mind that there was there was some familiarity, at least a little bit, before that happened. Wasn't but, there something in Matthew where you know the scene where they're down by the water and Jesus tells them to put the their you know their uh, nets back in the water, and at that point, it doesn't sound like Peter is a Christ follower. Um, but they're talking together. Mm-hmm. I don't know, here it is. It's in um, Luke chapter five. So I think maybe you're right. I think maybe they already know him and he's been told of who he thinks he is. 
Jesus tells him to put your net in the water. And then, you know, he says, well, we've been fishing all day and we haven't caught anything. <clears throat> and so he says, do it. And so, I mean, Jesus says that. And then uh, he pulls up the nets and they're full, you know, to the point of breaking. And then Peter turns to Jesus and says, you are the son of God. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I tend to think, see, I tend to think that a lot, large part of John's gospel is he's assuming people already know certain things because the next thing that he talks about is Jesus calling Peter or I sort of renaming Peter, uh, 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 the rock or the way I've always pronounced this was Cephas, but I actually looked it up and I've been pronouncing it wrong my whole life. He says, you are Kephas, but that word means that that's one of the words that we, uh, translate as rock. And John puts that here, but the other, the other, uh, writers, uh, put that much later in the story. And so I think this is just sort of John saying, yeah, this is the guy that Jesus ended up calling the rock. Now it says even the following day. So John, John, this is one of the few times I think where John does try to put things like in a specific order. It says the following day, uh, Jesus finds another man named Philip in Galilee and tells him, follow me. And he begins to follow. Uh, this guy is from Bethsaida, which is the city of Andrew and Peter. So it makes me wonder as well, did this guy also have some familiarity going on, at least with um, Andrew and Peter, if these guys had potentially been study mates? You know, maybe they had gone to the same synagogue. Maybe they they had been studying the same things. And when it came time for Messiah to come, they were more or less ready in ways that maybe other people hadn't or at least ready in, you know, they were, they were a little closer to looking for the right things. And then that was part of what was able to make them uh, better candidates for Jesus to call. That makes me wonder about the interplay between our own desires to seek spiritual things and the call of the Holy spirit. And um, I don't know where that lies, but the spirit of course would have been involved. He would have been talking to them, and that would have either sparked their interest or because they showed an interest, he was able to guide them. I don't know how that works mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. it, just, it just makes a little more sense to me. I mean, of course, we are talking about the God of the universe here. And is he going to be uh, influential enough? Is he going to be uh, a dynamic enough that people might immediately want to follow him? Sure, possibly. I shouldn't even say possible. Yes, of course he could. But there's something about it that makes a little more sense that he that he gets to know them a little bit better first, gains their trust so that when they do turn and follow, it's it's a logical uh, decision, not just one based on an impulse. I like how, you know, Philip also has that strong impulse to share and so he goes and finds nathaniel and so what's funny to me about that is how that that interplays you know jesus saw nathaniel coming and he says behold an israelite indeed in whom is no dishonesty and nathaniel says how did you know me which is funny like christ is complimenting him and nathaniel's like yeah that's me which is a funny thing to say right mm. like you're a great guy. You're an honest man. And Nathaniel recognizes that. And um, 
But anyway, and then Jesus says, before that Philip called thee, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. And immediately Nathaniel says, thou art the son of God. Yeah. Like he recognizes Christ's ability uh, to, to see things that others can't see. And like maybe the, like maybe the heart. Yeah. Right to the heart, right yep. to the heart. Yep. Mm. You know, and I don't know how, how you feel about this, but you know, um, there is that uh, uh, show the chosen. And that is actually one of my favorite episodes is when, oh, when they're oh. talking about that. And mm-hmm. it's just, you know, how deeply it, it kind of portrays him as saying, you know what? You looked right into my soul. Oh, cool. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, I'm th- I think that what John is giving us here is different ways that we see people called to follow God. Some people, uh, well, let me back that up just a minute. I think everybody here that's being called has been looking, probably, probably studying, having at least some familiarity with the concept of Messiah, even if they don't totally get what Messiah is there for. These are people who have been studying, have been looking, uh, and some come with a little coaxing and some come immediately. Uh, and, and so that's, again, that's kind of portraying all walks of life and how people, how people come to God. Yeah, really all walks of life, right? Quite a variety of people. I just want to leave Nathaniel's story without showing how in verse 50, Jesus does, in my estimation, seem to have laughter in his voice. Um, because he says, uh, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, you're going to believe. Mm-hmm. And then he says, I'm telling you the truth. If you'll follow me, you're about to see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending, you know, etc. And it's like, he... He's so struck by Nathaniel's faith, and he loves that. And you can hear some joy in Jesus' voice because someone recognizes him. I, I really like that. Yeah, and all of this, all, all, all of this back and forth of the people looking for the Messiah, this tells me, too, that Old Testament study is important. A lot of Christians come in today, and they only want to read the New Testament. They don't. They just they just see the Old Testament is old, it's done, it's gone. But look at that, how we've spent the last three years studying that and being able to look forward. And these guys did not have a New Testament to study, to come to Jesus. Everything that they came from was from study of Old Testament prophecies and history. Well, it was interesting a while back because I was studying the prophecies. And in Daniel chapter 9, there's this messianic prophecy and so one of the commentaries I was reading said that um, Sir Isaac Newton had actually said that by understanding Daniel chapter 9, you could know of certainty that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised one. And, and that's so interesting because we often don't think in terms of, you know, we, we look back at Jesus and sort of intuitively understand that he's the Messiah, but they were being more objective in a way because they were looking at the prophecies of Daniel and saying, oh, look at that. There's a specific prophecy saying that in this year, this is going to happen. And um, and so I just thought it was super interesting that Sir Isaac Newton was actually the one who pointed out, if you had only this one prophecy, you could know that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Mm. Yeah, so Old Testament stuff. And that's how you, that's how you get 
the big picture. I don't have a problem with people starting with the Gospels, of course. I mean, Jesus is probably the most important aspect of the Bible that we need to understand. But it's when you go back and you're able to look at that older stuff and go, yeah, that was pointing to Jesus. That was pointing to Jesus. That was pointing to Jesus. You see know, the plan laid out. Seeing the plan laid out. It's so fascinating to see that plan laid out. And the fact that, you know, modern day Jews will just discount the New Testament entirely and not interpret those old uh, those old prophecies as prof- uh, prophesying Jesus, I think they're, re- well, obviously, I think they're missing the boat. I wouldn't be a Christian if I didn't think they were missing the boat. And, but, you know, some of those that we look at, it's like, absolutely, that is talking about Jesus. They go, nope. Nope, that's not talking about Jesus. And you know, I, I just look at it and I go, I don't know how you come to that conclusion. I do not know. Not if you, not if you put them all together, put the picture together and see it. So, um, I don't know. I guess it's kind of sad that they're, that they're missing that. And I always hope that they'll that they can come around someday. All right. Well, in John's chronology, continues things on. He puts it into yet the next day, um, which. Some chronologies we're going to see put things in different in different places. This is the next day we have Jesus at a wedding. Now, some like I said, some chronologies put this after what we're going to talk about next. To me, it sort of makes sense to put it here. Uh, that'll all make sense here in a minute once I stop rambling. Um, he finds he finds himself in a wedding, and I I it says he and his disciples were invited, and so I guess this is these four that he's picked up. At this point of, uh, of, uh, I don't remember all their names now, Andrew and I don't know. Did we ever get the second? That eh, doesn't matter. He's there with his disciples and he's invited to this wedding in Cana and <laughs> the wedding's got a problem. I guess the party has gone on a little long and they're, they're running out of wine and Jesus's mother comes to him and says they're out of wine and <laughs> Jesus he has an interesting reaction to his mom. And in some ways he's like, why are you coming to me with this? But the real way he puts it out is my hour has not yet come. There's some interesting things here. And I am curious trying to complicate, contemplate all of this all at once, because if this happens at this point in the chronology, that would mean that Jesus has not had the temptation in the wilderness that we're going to get to here in a little bit. And so this wouldn't be like his official beginning of ministry. And so he could be talking that maybe this is why he's saying it's not my hour. He could be pointing forward to his death. It's coming his death on the cross because what we see, well, let's talk a bit about the miracle itself because, okay, Mary comes and says they don't have any wine Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Mary just sort of overlooks that and just tells the servants, look, just do whatever he tells you to do. And so Jesus is like, well, okay. And he has them fill six water pots, which would be about 20 to 30 gallons. He has them fill them up with water. He says, take some to the master of the feast. And when the, when the master of the feast gets it, he's tasting wine so somewhere in that process that water has been turned to wine now there's a lot of question what kind of wine are we talking about a lot of people want 
uh, uh, believe that this was probably unfermented grape juice, like pure, fresh grape juice. Other people are like, no, it's a party, you know, wine. And they say that, oh, this is better than than what you had before. I'm not a to- I'm not 100 percent sure where I land in that spectrum. To me, I would guess that being the time period, anybody ever having unfermented wine was probably pretty rare because they didn't have all those pasteurization processes like we have with good old Welch's grape juice. And so I would guess that most people usually when they were tasting what what they would call wine, they were probably getting something a bit fermented and, and maybe tasting just a bit a bit off, you know. And so for um, for this to then come to uh, and when I say master of the ceremony, I guess, I don't know, to me, I'm trying to kind of taking that to be the caterer. I don't know. But um, calling it better than what was coming out before tells me that probably it was fresher than what had been out before that's just my take on this so fresher Um, being fresher being like brand new grape juice that's kind of my take see that see that's my take too because my thing is like you're saying they didn't have the the ability to stop stop decay basically and when you Mm -hmm. look at when you look at wine that's kind of what it is it's Mm -hmm. being broken down it's turning back. It's um, being fermented. It's turning into alcohol, and and if you, I like to tell people, so you leave grape juice in your refrigerator for an extended period of time. You go and take a swig of it. It doesn't taste good. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe even to that point, there could have been stages to say like, okay, this is brand new grape juice. This one has been you know on the on the shelf for for a couple of days. Good mm-hmm. luck. It costs a little less. Um, but I, when I see that, that God made wine, I'm thinking it was his, from his hand, create, created best grapes, brand new. That's Mm -hmm. why it tastes so good. I think so. I just want to go back a little bit in the story and, and notice how, you know, he could have refused. He could have said no. And he does hesitate and yet he he does listen to his mom. And I think what's happening in the story is he doesn't want this bridegroom and this bride to have any shame. He wants them to have a wonderful day. And I wonder if he knew them. I mean, he's at their wedding, right? And mm-hmm. and his mother is saying, hey, let's do this thing, you know, for them. And and it turns out to be a, such a wonderful story because Jesus is participating in someone's wedding, which is something we've all done. And, and he's, he's enjoying the people in that time. And then I think the governor of the feast is probably something we don't have now. Like Mm -hmm. it's probably some, maybe the person officiating the wedding. I don't know because then he calls over the bridegroom and he says, wow, you've saved the best for last. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know who that person was, that governor of the feast. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody somebody who's it seems it would seem somebody who's kind of in charge of making sure that things keep going. And, uh, you know, I mean, I suppose these days we might think of him like a wedding coordinator, caterer. Oh, uh, see, I thought more of like yeah. the pastor, you know, like the pastor. person officiating. Possibly. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. 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 We don't know that part for sure. But the, the important I think some of the important things of this miracle, we are able to glean looking back as from uh, the rest of the gospel. 
and we will get to the communion service, uh, the, the Last Supper, uh, where we see Jesus representing his blood with wine. And so the fact that this is one of the first miracles that he performs is including this imagery of wine would seem to indicate that there is some, he's got some reason for going ahead and doing this now of, of uh, drawing attention, maybe drawing attention to the wine and to build up to later. Yeah, that's my blood. And also with it happening at a wedding, we've talked on the podcast before where that imagery of Jesus and the church is like a marriage relationship. And so those, those imageries coming together here at this first miracle, I think are significant. Yes, that's exactly what I'm seeing too. And and when he says, you know, at the last supper, he says, I won't, I won't be drinking this again until we are all together in the kingdom. You know, that's huge in Jesus mind. The reason he came is to restore his family. He came to rescue us and to restore his family. And then he's looking forward to the day when there will be another great wedding feast and he will serve us this wonderful wine, something mm-hmm. we've never had before. Yeah, Jesus doesn't do things on accident, and so no. Uh, when Mary comes and does this, you know he 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 puts up a little. I don't think it's real uh, uh, resistance at all, but just pointing some things out that you know it's not quite it's not quite where I would have started, but um, but but uh, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do this, and um, of course, I think it was probably exactly when he intended to start. Or at least, uh, you know, poking his head up and and, mm-hmm. and showing. Uh, I wonder if the people at the feast knew anything about this miracle. Because the uh, it doesn't seem necessarily that the bridegroom knows. It doesn't seem necessarily, other than the bridegroom obviously would have known that we were out of wine. And the master of ceremonies, or whatever we want to call him, he would have understood that they were out. What about the rest of the people? Did they understand that while well, we were out and now we have all this this new fresh wine, this really good stuff? Um, I'm a little curious on that, but we're not really given that indication. But um, clearly there were enough people to know for it to be written about. So it's very it is very interesting that this is uh, that this was his first miracle. At this point, then we're going to shift into the synoptic gospels. Because John does not talk about this next part at all, which is interesting. But it also leads me to believe that John, by the time he's writing his gospel, knows that people know this stuff that's coming up. And so he's pointing out things that the others don't talk about. Because the others don't talk about this wedding at Cana at all. And then John does not talk about this this temptation in the wilderness that Jesus gets. We're told that he that Jesus is led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That is an interesting phrase from the get go, because my my first little note that I wrote here was a question led by the spirit to be tempted. That sits funny in my it sits funny in my mouth when I say it, because generally, I mean, don't we pray? Lead us not into temptation. Isn't that part of the uh, the Lord's prayer? Yet Jesus was specifically led to be tempted. 
I get more of a sense of the fact that he is about to do open battle with Satan mm-hmm. and that it's not, you know, I mean, yes, it is. That is how it's worded. It is worded that he's been driven there or led there to be tempted. But uh, don't you kind of get the sense that what's really going on is that this is <clears throat> this is a planned battle. Yeah. And the Lord, the Lord knows what he's getting into and he's going there to meet with the adversary who has claimed this world. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, not so much as a leading, but a saying, okay, it's time to go. Time to go. Time to yeah. go. We need to do this. Yep. Yeah. I think you, you, you read, you read in, you read between the lines of it and you realize that that is what's being said there. I mean, the wording itself sounds a little funny, but yes, this is, this is the, this is the real beginnings of things. Like you said, Amy, and I like the phrase open battle. Um, that's it, it becomes very direct at this point and uh that's where jesus has led to 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 go there uh interestingly though he in a human aspect he ends up in such a weak state for a battle because mm-hmm. we're told mm-hmm. we're told that he fasts for 40 days and nights and my first if the first thought i had reading that was Okay, there's all kinds of fasts, but then one of the one of the uh, the uh, gospels for certain, and I don't remember which one, says he ate and drank nothing for forty days and forty nights. And so I'm like, oh, okay, so it is that kind of fast. And so there's a lot of things that are happening there. I mean, first of all, eating and drinking nothing for forty days. The average human, what Tracy? We can't go more than three days without water. Three days without water. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and then I mean, you can't go. You can't go too many more days without food. Like two weeks, something like that. Yeah, it's not going to be fun, but 40 days. And so that tells us there's a little something extra supernatural happening here because there's no way a human being lasts that long with with no food or water. You know, the way I look at it, too, is I look at, you know, there could always be that argument to say that, you know what, Jesus was 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 perfect he um, he wasn't he didn't have any of those human genetic or characteristical uh, flaws. So I think maybe the reason for the fast is to say, you know what? He was at his lowest, his weakest point. Just like when we as as humans are up against, I like to call them like situational stressors. We look to the Lord, and it's like we're at our most vulnerable state. I think that's where why Jesus did that to be at the most vulnerable state mm-hmm. where yeah, you have I really to like do, that. call upon your, um, not your, but call upon heaven's help basically. Right. Right. I really like that. And especially in light of the fact that when he reaches the bottom and Satan is right there with him, tempting him, what does he rely on? He yep. relies entirely on the word of God. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and I suppose like you're pointing out here, Jesus the man was in no state to go into a bat into battle like this at this at least not not in a physical sense. But I guess you know fasting indicates more than just not eating. Fasting indicates deliberate, probably time praying and meditating and preparing mm-hmm. for something. Because if you if you if you fast, it's for a purpose. It's not just to be hungry. Right. Which which we're told 
And I got it's one of those things that I, I chuckle. It's not necessarily funny, but at the same time, when you look at it, you know, it, it is sort of funny because of the way they word it. But after 40 days of no food and no water, he says afterward he was hungry. Like, <laughs> I'll bet he was. <laughs> but, you know, he was hungry and. You know, he didn't have a Snickers there to to make him feel better. Uh, you know, I know if I know if I'm hungry enough, I I'm not in a great place. And this isn't just a little hungry. I mean, this is like starvation hungry. You can imagine that he was probably after 40 days. I mean, he's probably skin and bones. He's probably absolutely emaciated. And and so from a human standpoint, he's in no position then physically for this kind of a confrontation. But spiritually, I suppose we could argue that he has been uplifted and um, his mindset maybe is in a better place to be able to to combat this kind of a battle. You know, I think I look at it too as just being in that that state of starvation, hunger, dehydration, you know, you don't make sometimes you don't make the best decisions. You make quick, hasty decisions. But everything is is pulled from the scripture. That's, you know, I think it's it's down to that core of just, you know what, this should be your foundation. When everything else is gone, the word should be your foundation. Absolutely. Maybe one other thing to point out is, you know, we would, if we knew we were facing something really huge, we might do something like carb loading, you know, <laughs> in our modern way of thinking, we're like going to prepare in that way by right. putting on extra calories by putting on, you know, the sort of taking on more into us. And Jesus is showing us a different way because it doesn't even say the spirit told him to do this. It says the spirit told him to go into the wilderness. And then it says, and when he had fasted 40 days. So Jesus's way of preparation for something really big is to exclusively talk to his father and Mm -hmm. not even eat. Like nothing Mm -hmm. is more important than his time with God. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Important for us to remember. I mean, I don't know that any of us would ever probably ever have to be called to fast. Well, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe we could be called to fast for 40 days. I don't 40 know. 40 days. Wow. That's, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I, I have a hard time fasting for, I don't think I've ever gone one day without food. I've gone days where I've had like a meal in the day. You know, I suppose we've all done that. You get to the end of the day and, oh, I haven't eaten all day, you know. And we're like, mm, I'm kind of hungry, or I'm really hungry, but we're not, uh, we're not, not, not this level, not, not at all. Well, yeah, the intermittent fast has no appeal to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, the first temptation then that Satan gives, it seems like probably the most obvious one at this point, because as I pointed out, it's been pointed out, Jesus is hungry, and so Satan pops shows up and he says. If you're the son of God, command that these stones become bread. That to me, if I had that power, that would probably be quite a temptation to just, you know what? I'm just going to take care of the immediate need. I'm just going to take care of that immediate. You know what? Let me strike that because I'm going to take care of that immediate want. You know, we think of, we tend to think of food as a necessity, you know, and it is for sustaining physical life. But like Amy pointed out, you know, days of days and days of only talking to God has sustained Jesus. And so is food at this point a need for Jesus? I kind of think not. At this point, 
it would definitely be a want. It would definitely be a desire, uh, a physical desire. And I think that's largely the point here. And as we move forward into these uh, these temptations, it's been pointed out to me in the past, and it'll it'll, pro- it'll take a little thinking to remember how, but Jesus is actually tempted here in the same ways that Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden, where uh, different aspects of existence are what is being tempted or is the catalyst for the temptation here. And so that first one of of that physical desire for food, I think it, it represents more than just actually just food. It's just physical desires in general. Um, any number of things that we can find, the, the things that could drive us into accepting things just so that we could get that, um, so that we could obtain that physical desire. And so Satan tempts him here with with food. And, a, you know, on the surface, it doesn't necessarily sound like a great temptation. But uh, for some reason, Jesus is understanding that he has to resist these these things here because his immediate response is, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And he is quoting scripture. He's quoting from Deuteronomy uh, chapter eight. And that is that is an interesting aspect that everything he says from here forward in this temptation scenario is uh, quoting from scripture. So it took me a minute to find it, but in John chapter 4, verse 32, the disciples are trying to get Jesus to eat, and he says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Then he goes on to say, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. And I've always found that passage so interesting because I feel like Jesus's grasp on the Father is much stronger than his appetite. And I I've, I find a lot of my life is taken up in preparing food, purchasing food, taking care of food, you know, all this sort of thing. And we we eat on a certain schedule, blah, blah, blah. And yet Jesus makes that such a low priority. And it really makes me question our priorities. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. You think about how much time we spend for food. You know, mm-hmm. we will work in general, you know, an eight hour ish day Mm -hmm. to supply physical needs. We will spend literally about a third of our life just Mm -hmm. to, just to sustain ourselves, to keep a roof over our head, to have food, to have clothing, to have transportation, those physical, those physical things. And yeah, Jesus putting that aside and going, that's not that important. Mm Mm-hmm. That is a that is a paradigm shift for sure for us. It is um, to to try to get out of out of that mindset. I mean, you know, I'm going, I'm I'm getting ready to start my third year of running a business, and every day it's like, all right, how am I going to make money tomorrow? How am I going to mm-hmm. make money the day after that? Because right. I got a mortgage, I got kids to feed, I've got, you know, I would like to have warm clothing because it's getting cold outside, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And Jesus is like. Yeah, you know what? That's that's not that important. This physical right, right. this physical stuff in the grand scheme is not that important. And that's well, hard and for us to that's hard for us to grasp because so much of our life is that. Well, and yeah. it's more like he gives us 
the assurance that, you know, because in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, your father knows you need those things. You know, it's almost like an aside. Yep, we got you covered there. Don't worry about that. And I, that to me is super powerful because just the knowledge of the fact that heaven will always provide what I need takes away the anxiety of all of that, of all mm-hmm. of our striving, everything we're striving for. Heaven can provide in a wink, you know. Mm-hmm. See, and I, I think, too, I think once again, you know, that's what he was trying to point out that, like Matt was saying in the very beginning, the two, the Old Testament and the New Testament run together. Because if you look at the Exodus, what was the biggest, mm-hmm. biggest concern coming out of <laughs> Egypt? Not even days into the, I like to call it the march, but, you know, where's our food going to come from? Where are we, what are we going to eat? Yeah. What are we going to eat? You know, and God was like, you know, there's, you're missing the big picture once again. Mm-hmm. All these, all these things that you put so much concern on, I got them covered. What you need to be doing is you need to be looking to me and heavenward, and it's like to the promised land, and we keep missing it. And still, even in the New Testament, you know what? Let me show you that this other stuff, I could go forty days without eating or drinking. And yet, where do I pull all my strength from God, from mm-hmm. from the scriptures, knowing your Savior? That is awesome, Tracy, because that is exactly it. I mean, all through the Old Testament, too. I mean, think about Elijah, right? I come from farm people. I come from people who are very concerned to be prepared for the coming winter. Like we can, we freeze. We're almost like preppers, right? And yet the scripture is very clear. Uh, Elijah, a famine is coming. There's going to be a terrible famine and no rain for three years. Go sit by this river and I'll send the birds to feed you. What? Yep. <laughs> you know, but that is that is what the scripture says. And for, for years, the birds came and fed him. That's so great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, there's a there, I suppose there could be a temptation for us here, to, though, to simply just say, don't ever worry about that at all. You know, and. I don't know, that might be a little short-sighted because we see people who who go without all, all the time. We know that there are people who starve to death, but we got to look at, again, big picture stuff. You know, if you start, even if you starve to death, how did Job put it? Yeah, he, though he slay me, still will I follow him? Yep. Yeah, this time right now is not our goal. <laughs> and, and, What's important is is that relationship uh, with God, that word of God, those promises that he's made to sustain and, and keep us up. And remembering that to God, and sometimes people really, they really take, take offense to me saying this, to God, life is cheap. Life, uh, if my life is gone, God can resurrect me in an instant it's nothing to him to resurrect me and so if i put my trust in him i don't have to worry about this mortal life now well no you're right and i think we there's nothing wrong with having those skills you know the skills that you know we all work so that we can have what we need and we also have like the skills of gardening or canning or freezing those aren't bad things to have but you keep having word, you keep using these same words. And I, I think these words are important in this context, anxiety and worry. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's what he's taking away from us. He's mm-hmm. not saying don't work. 
Um, right. Don't, you know, he's just saying the Lord knows that you need these things and this is not a cause for concern. Where's your primary focus at? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, he, does, he, you know, he says man does not live by bread alone. Mm-hmm. So that's, he's not saying that that's not, he's not saying that's not important. Right. Uh, that right. is important, but that's not the only thing that's keeping you alive. And it's not it, your focus. It's not your focus. Because after 40 days in the wilderness, the only reason Jesus is still alive is because God the Father has kept him alive. Yeah. And that's, that's, his, that's part of his point that he's putting out there to Satan. So Satan changes tactics, and he takes Jesus to the top of the temple. And he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. With the and it basically, it's like throw yourself down, and the angels will catch you. And that's uh, interesting here because now Satan has seen Jesus answer with Scripture, and now mm-hmm. Satan is attacking with Scripture because he's he's quoting from Psalm ninety one eleven, which uh, maybe should have had had brought up, um, but he's he's quoting Scripture himself now, which shows us that. You know, even we have to be fairly well studied to to know when somebody is misusing scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, because it can be misused just because it's in the Bible and just because somebody quotes it doesn't necessarily mean that it's being quoted properly. Uh, Tracy and I have the last few weeks we've been going back and, and restudying uh, Job with with a group. And, you know, when you look at those words that those guys are preach or speaking to Job at the time, we talked about this when we studied Job on the podcast, um, you know, those words sound good, but they are mis they're misusing things there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's it's bad theology, even though it sounds good, you know, and this is Satan here. It's like you're the son of God. Throw yourself down in the temple. Psalm 91 says it's going to be fine because you're the son of God. Right. And, right. and, um, so, so yeah, Satan can quote scripture too, but Jesus comes back, says, you shall not tempt the Lord, your God. And he's quoting there from Deuteronomy, uh, six, uh, Deuteronomy six sixteen to be specific. And I think so where the, that first temptation was tempting the physical aspects, like the fruit physically was a temptation to Adam and Eve. Now we see this, uh, putting into question Jesus's divinity, um, you know, act, if you, you know, act like God, um, show us, you know, just do it. And I'm kind of thinking that with Adam and Eve, that temptation, if you remember, it's like, if you eat it, then you'll be like gods. Mm-hmm. And so okay. it's sort of the same tactic here. It's, it's slightly different here because Satan fully, well, he full well knows who he's talking to here. And, so where before he was talking to mortal, well, I suppose at the time, immortal, created human beings, he knows now he's talking to the creator himself. And so it's still very much the same. You want to be like God? Act like God. And Jesus just comes right back. You will not tempt the Lord your God. Then... Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain, it says, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I remember seeing a movie once upon a time. I don't remember what movie it was, but 
where it's like the whole history, the future history of the world was laid out before Jesus. And he could see all the way down through modern times and seeing seeing all the all the nations of the world, all of the people that were at his time and would be laid out before him. And Satan says, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. You know, that's what I don't understand. How do you how do you tempt somebody with something that's already theirs? I feel like the the Satan is showing his hand in this third temptation mm-hmm. because this is all he's ever wanted. This is what he wants. And, you know, we get glimpses of who Satan is prior to the New Testament, but it's it's difficult to ascertain exactly who he is, you know, and, and we know little bits, he's a fallen angel, he wanted glory, um, but that's the key thing. It's always, you know, you said to yourself, I will be like the most high. That's what the Old Testament says about him. So to me, it seems like in this temptation, he's literally showing his hand and he's saying, this is all I ever wanted. I want you to bow to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And well, and he's also showing his he's also showing his limitations here because like you pointed out, Tracy, he's not recognizing that even though he's claimed it, the world is not his. He can say it. He can say it's his. But when it gets right down to it, he is another created being. He he doesn't even have the ability to maintain this planet himself. Mm -hmm. All of it is sustained by God. Mm-hmm. Satan is nothing more than another created being. And without God's hand, this world is 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 gone. And so I do I think that this is a just a last ditch effort on his part. It's like, just give me what I wanted. And I, you know, and maybe even at this point, he's he's recognizing that that he could be even he could be wiped out at this point. But if Jesus would just just bow the knee, if he would just mm-hmm. give him that give him that satisfaction that he would go he, that he would just go away. Wait, I don't think he really would. Not if he was allowed to uh, continue to exist. Yeah, just 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 give me this one thing I want. And it, it shows too he doesn't care about us at all. No. The devil does not. No. He doesn't care about this world. He certainly doesn't care about us. You know, we we have mankind has sort of grown this concept that Jesus and Satan are sitting here on equal equal level and that they're duking it out and and the winner is going to get us. But Satan is at such a lower level. But not only that, he is not concerned with you and me at all, other than as a means to an end. He recognizes Jesus's love for us. He recognizes that that Jesus would do anything to try to save us. You know, does Satan understand that plan of redemption at this point? I don't know. But he really, really just shows that he's not really concerned with us at all. It's we're just that uh, we're just that uh, that means to an end for him to try to get what he wants. I love Jesus's simple response because he says, go away, Satan, Mm. for it is written, worship only God. Mm -hmm. And the devil leaves like what? You know, this is like we were talking, you know, this is open battle. And finally, at the end of it, Jesus says, go away. And 
And then he says, you, you, we are only to worship God. And that's the end of the fight. Mm-hmm. That is, that is the end of the fight. Um, in a lot of ways, things are one right there. Mm-hmm. Satan knows he's not going to get what he wants. And so from here on out in the rest of the gospel, it's really now he's just trying to, I don't know, get in those last few, those last few blows. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause he, re- I, he's got to realize at this point, he is never going to get the worship he wants, not in the way he wants it. Like, you know, even here, you know, here on earth, we have a church of Satan, which is just frightening to me. Why anybody, anybody would go that route. But that is not the worship he wants. He wants, he wants that supremacy. He wants to be in the place of Jesus. And uh, he sees right here, he's not going to get it. Jesus has not eaten for 40 days. He should be dead. He is physically weak. He is, I mean, if you were to look at him, you would just assume he was going to fall over. And and he still, even at this point, will not bow that knee to his creator. Or his, wow, excuse his me. Creation. His creation. Creation. <laughs> Say that right. Who we? <laughs> he just fired up our millions and millions of listeners. Oh, mm-hmm. Matt, I, back to what you were saying a minute ago, too. I, I feel like, you know, Satan is not going to get what he wants. And honestly, from this time forward, too, we see... Christ casting out demons again simply with a word so he'll look into someone's very broken life you know the demon possessed and he will say get out of them and they get they go they obey in an instant they have no choice and the power of Christ is seen in his simple answer here you know his his absolute power is held uh, in a calmness that we can't even understand. Jesus knows exactly who he is and he can command Satan. So I'm just, I'm looking at that right now and I'm excited by the fact that Christ can so calmly dominate the evil that takes over our lives. And we don't need to be afraid of that either because we can look at this and say, okay, Jesus really has that kind of power. And even though Satan might be dominating someone we love, uh, like I was telling you about, Matt, this morning with my family, Jesus has power over that. He really does. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I think, yeah, I think right here, for the largest part, right here, the, the the war was largely won. After this, it's skirmishes, it's those last bits of cleanup, even to the point of the crucifixion and resurrection. Those are for, well. I think those are largely for the benefit of the created beings, not only us, but the other worlds to see that, mm. okay, not only is Jesus interested in dominion, but he's also interested in, in redemption. But I, I think right here, this would have been, could have been a, a point where Jesus said, look, all right, that's it. I've won. And, and he could have, he possibly could have squashed Satan right there. But there was still some more stuff to do. There was still more, there's still more aspects of his character that need to come through for the rest of creation to see. Because right now, I think people can see that, or at least I, I, I think it's, it's showing that Satan does not have any claim, not of any real su- sustenance, but Jesus isn't, he's not done. This is not the, 
it's not it's not finished yet for our purposes. And so that's why we have quite a bit of the gospel left moving forward. And uh, we do start to see some very interesting ways then that Jesus very directly starts to openly go up against Satan and his and his forces. Now, the chronology moving forward, like I've said before, is going to is going to be bouncing around a bit. So as we read in the coming weeks, we're going to be kind of all over the place between the synoptic gospels. And I honestly don't know how to tell our listeners to proceed moving forward. Because next week we're going to talk about a lot of the miracles that Jesus performed. We will be talking about probably the woman at the well. We will be talking, I don't know, we're going to be talking about lots of different things. And so um, I would say just continue reading those first few chapters in each of the Gospels. Because we are in, oh, no, it's hard to say. <laughs> um, see, but this is all good stuff. And I think, too, just the excitement of it is it's. While it bounces us around, it's in a good way. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. We can't wait to get more. Yeah, it's no, yeah. It's certainly not a complaint by any means. It's just me moving along with the the idea that we were going to try to study chronologically. And like I said at the beginning of this episode, I don't think that the order that things happened in is so important as that they happened. And so, mm-hmm. you know, when does the serpent sermon on the mount happen in relation to you know Jesus? Uh, healing Peter's mother-in-law you know those kind of things does is it that important I, I don't know that it is it's just at this point it seems like a lot of the gospels is just relaying the things that that Jesus was doing and so mm-hmm. uh, that's that's what we'll be moving forward so I am going to say continue reading in Matthew 4 Luke 4 Mark 1 All right, well, whatever we end up deciding to read, uh, I pray that while you're reading and waiting for us that uh, you can remember that you can reach out to us at attvpodcast at theadventure.org. Remember, you can look us up on Facebook. Make sure that you share the podcast with your friends and family and make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so we can reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.